Hi, I'm Andrew Stephen from the Side Business School at the University of Oxford. The advertising industry is a multi-billion dollar global industry. It touches our lives pretty much every day, maybe even hundreds of times a day as we interact with advertising on all the different media channels we consume, but also the brands and products that, that we use throughout our daily lives. So advertising is everywhere and it's been that case for decades, if not longer. But it's also an industry that is constantly being changed, constantly being threatened and challenged by you know, social issues as well as technology development, the rise of data and so on. So where is advertising headed and where is that place for great creative ideas that create emotional connections with consumers? Do we still need that or is it just about the machines with data? So I had a chat with Carter Murray, who's the worldwide CEO of FCB. FCB, if you're not aware, is one of the very large global advertising agency companies, which is owned by the Interpublic Group, one of the, the, the four big holding companies in the advertising industry. Carter's been the CEO globally of FCB for about seven or so years and has really turned it around uh, into you know, one of the absolute very, very best agencies on the planet. So we talked a little bit about the turnaround, but we also talked a lot about his perspective on creativity in advertising and why FCB doubled down on it. I began my conversation, though, by asking Carter to kind of go back a little bit, just tell us about his background and his journey to the role he is in today. I started my career um, in Leo Burnett in Chicago uh, and as an assistant account executive more in account management, looking after global clients. And then I moved back to Europe um, uh, and became the CMO of Publicis and then went to an agency called YNR. Uh, I actually ran the global Nestle account there too as my last job and then moved to YNR North America as the CEO. And about seven years ago, got a phone call from this, one of my favorite headhunters in the world. I actually went to her looking for planners and she came to me in, with a very posh English accent said, you know, don't say no to this job. At the time, it was, you know, it's a car crash of a brief. It's perfect for you. Uh, and I was like, what the hell does that mean? And, um, and yeah, and there was a company called Draft FCB. Um, it was, at the time, not in a very good place. They'd lost some of their global clients. Still had about 8,000 employees, but had really lost its sense of purpose and direction. Uh, and everyone told me I was crazy. And, and, uh, but I, my sort of specialty is turnarounds. And I, and I loved it. You know, I, why would you not take FCB as one of the three oldest brands in the world in, in communications? And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a, a pretty wild ride since. I mean, the first three years, we, we were really restructuring. And you've had me come and talk at Oxford a little bit about how to restructure organizations uh, on a burning platform to, to kind of reposition them for growth and success. So that was really the first three, three years. And the last three years really has been the strategy paying off and particularly through COVID, um, we were very fortunate from a business perspective um, where you know, we've got a whole new roster of global clients. Um, our creative product, which I'm gonna share some today, I think is, is I, I'm very, very proud of. Uh, and I know our clients that develop them are too. And, and yeah, it's been, a, it's been a journey, but I think we focused on the right things and, and uh, and I think some of our competitors have strayed and gone into different directions, which has allowed us to double down on what we believe in. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's been a ride. You've watched the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, with, with admiration. So what, what, 
What did you double down on? So, so you sort of alluded to, to competitors going in, in other directions. What were those directions? And then what was... Well, what was well I think maybe take, taking a step back, you know, I think you wanted me to talk a little bit about, you know, the advertising landscape. Um, mm -hmm. If you go back to the... And again, it's going way back. But if you go back to the 70s and the 80s and even the early 90s, um, you had advertising agencies that were really born as global companies with their clients. So when you had a Gray, which they've just announced is, is going to disappear, but when Gray had Procter & Gamble and Procter & Gamble said, we're going to Africa, we're going to Asia, we're going to, you know, we're going to um, Latin America, the ad, they said to the ad agencies, we'll help finance it with you by giving you the business, you go with us. So you had this expansion of these creative ad agencies like FCB, like Ogilvy, like McCann, and then what happened in the 90s is, uh, and Martin Sorrell was the first one to do it. He bought this shell company called WPP that actually made trolley carts, uh, but it was really an acquisition vehicle. And he went and bought the germs of the industry at the time, Ogilvy, JWT, Gray, and created this big consortium. And then another man called Morris Levy did the same with Publicis, which was you know, a, a relatively strong French ad agency, but he is a very smart guy like Martin Sorrell in terms of financials and gearing. And, and actually, I was at Leo Burnett when Publicis bought them. And I remember in the hallways of Chicago, the management going, why, why is this French company buying us? We're Leo Burnett. And I just remember thinking, well, you're not. They're buying you. And so there was this <clears throat> massive consolidation into really four big holding companies in our industry, which, which kind of dominate our industry on the, on the communication side. There's WPP, there's Publicis, there's Interpublic, which is what, our, what FCB is a part of, which also have McCann, Ericsson, RGA media brands, and there's Omnicom. And, and so there was a scaling up. Um, and what we've seen in the last five years is them having slightly different strategies and how they want to help clients with their marketing. So there have been two that have invested very, very heavily in data. So we had a multi-billion dollar acquisition by Axiom. Publicis did the same. But what we've seen is that our industry, sorry, coming back to it, I have a fundamental belief that marketing is that creativity is the economic multiplier. When you have a brilliant creative idea for your brand and your business, it's where you can crush your competition. It's where you can get exponential returns. And too many, I think, agencies and even some holding companies have walked away from that because the easy thing to do is to tell a client, we can measure every widget and we can make everything measurable. And that, but then you get this inertia of everyone becoming commoditized. And, and so there is a pivotal debate in our industry today. It's not an either or, it's an and. You need to have that brand and that creativity to build long-term brands. And you need to be able to use the data to drive insights, but also to get generate short-term sales and the two come together. Since we're talking about creativity, one to start with. Well, I think, I think maybe the one to share with your team, uh, uh, you know, uh, is definitely Whopper Detour to kick off, to give them a sense of what I'm talking about. What the detour was done for Burger King, uh, and you'll see we, we ring-fenced every single uh, McDonald's in the United States. So what you saw 10 years ago is stunts, like one-off stunts that went viral, and everyone said, this is the future of marketing. Actually, I think people want things that are more purposeful and more scaled. Uh, this was, this um, won the Grand Prix in Cannes as the top award, but more importantly, 
Uh, Fernando uh, Machado, if, if Machado, if if you don't know him, he's probably the leading one of the top five marketers in the world at Burger King. Wrote an article about how this reframed how he thought about marketing, because the return on investment they had spent four years doing traditional acquisition to try and get mobile app users, and when we did this, I think in four months they got the same results as they gotten in four years for like a fraction of the cost, and so. Again, when I talk about creativity as an economic multiplier, Andrew, I think what's interesting is they needed, they were in the wilderness in download apps. And if you're in, the, if you're in QSR, fast food, you know that you need to have people and the app in order to succeed in the future. So we applied that creativity to a very specific need that they had. So if we can, could we, <clears throat> could we play the um, Whopper Detour spot, please? Burger King wants you to come here. Yes to McDonald's. Burger King is trolling its fast food rival with a promotion available through the Burger King mobile app. Yeah, but there is a small catch. So I saw this Burger King commercial where you can get a Whopper for a penny. Only if you open the app while you're at McDonald's. That doesn't even make sense. You, you have to go to McDonald's? For a Whopper? Whopper? Use Burger King's BK app, then be within 600 feet of a McDonald's restaurant. Burger King geofenced over 14,000. 14,000 McDonald's restaurants in the U.S. Unbelievable. So I parked my news car about 100 feet from a McDonald's. I'm at McDonald's getting a coupon for Burger King. I almost feel like I'm stealing. Let's go for the unlock. Yes! Ah. You unlocked the Whopper Detour. This is a really cool promo, guys. How fun is this? This is an amazing use of technology to get consumers out of a rival store and into your own store. Can you do a Whopper Junior? They probably could make that. It wouldn't be as good as Burger King would, to be honest with you. Where's the Burger King? Like four blocks to your left. 37 to one ROI, I think is, is what I saw towards yeah. the end there. Pretty amazing. No wonder uh, the CMO was a happy, uh, happy guy. Mm. Um, so, so, you know, you talked about, uh, you know, the, the sort of the genesis of this and, and sort of actually the, the underlying business purpose. They needed to get more mobile app users and, and to do that, you know, that customer acquisition in you know, the most efficient and cost-effective way. Um, and this is a, but this is a really creative solution, right? And so, so you know, to your point about doubling down creativity, um, it, it feels like there's, a, there's obviously a business uh, or commercial objective here, but it's a very creative way of doing that. Um, so, so how, within the agency, how, how does this sort of, I guess, merging of great creative ideas with technology, by the way, because they obviously involve geofencing and, 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 right. and an app, um, but plus, you know, keeping the, the, the client's commercial objectives in mind. How does that 
how does that come together? Because clearly you, you could imagine these three things as being different tensions, pulling the work in, in three different directions, or maybe they can work in harmony, but that's a different way of approaching the work, I imagine. The answer is not going to be the one you think. It's not actually so much about the agency in the process. It's about the client and the process. So if you look at Whopper Detour, that was two people, maybe three, that fought for that for 18 months. I mean, you can imagine the legal team being like, can you do that? Um, and so if I look at all the great work I'll show you today, or all the great work that we've done, I've seen in my career, it's always been the client, one or two clients. It's never been an organization. Like where the work breaks down is we've had 16 clients giving feedback or 10 clients on a piece of work. It's where you have one or two clients that go, I am the decision maker, I trust the creative person, and I will protect that idea. Internally, I think it's a work in progress. I think no agency has cracked how to perfectly use the data with a creative. Mm -hmm. So I took, four years ago, I took our top, I think, 20 CEOs around the world to Silicon Valley for the week. And it was fascinating listening to Google, you know, have you, you know, YouTube specialists talk to us, Facebook come and talk to us. And they all said, look, what's really happened is we thought you were competitors, but then our technology ran way ahead of the creativity. Mm. And now we're in a place where your clients, our clients, we can give them the technology, but we, we don't have the creativity. You know, when you look at a traditional TV ad, or, or what I would now call a broadcast ad, because it's not really TV, it's on YouTube, it, you know, a, a high piece of content can be shared. There is a way of doing that where you connect emotionally where you're storytelling. I think when you start doing programmatic, when you start doing customized one-to-one -one at scale, you should very quickly start, and using the data, you very, start, very quickly start chopping up the story and compromising the emotional quality of the message mm -hmm. to close a sale, to get the product in the right place. And keeping that level of quality and creativity is something that no one's really consistently cracked. I think we've actually made more progress than most. Um, you know, how do you build up these sort of newer tech skills, I guess, within as creative tools, not necessarily as just sort of data science type things like VR or AR or mobile app development, these sorts of things. It's actually doing the work. So mm -hmm. uh, we have a guy who runs North America for us called Tyler Turnbull, who's a pretty remarkable man. And um, when he took over our Canada office six years, seven years ago, it was a big government traditional ad agency. The first thing he did is he made every individual get Google certified, which any of you can do, by the way, including from the receptionist to the CCO. And then, you know, that was one of many, many things they did. Our agency in Canada just got awarded Digital Agency of the Year for the fifth year in a row in Canada. And when you have a scaled organization like us, it's about the people at the top of the organization taking it seriously and still being willing to roll up their sleeves and do the work. Uh, and it just gets easier as you move up to kind of pontificate, a bit like I'm doing today, probably. But, um, <laughs> you know, you need to do the work. And uh, what they're doing at a holding company level, at some holding companies, is they're going, oh, we need data and we need creative. Let's just smash those two agencies and management teams together <laughs> and go make it work. And to your point, Andrew, it's about people. It's about culture. And that stuff matters. And... Um, when I inherited this company, it was Draft FCB. Draft was a direct data company and FCB. And it was seven years after they put them together. And the company was just all over the place because it had lost its focus and its culture. And I think 
one thing I'm proud of about FCB is that, you know, again, we've got 8,000 people. So you can't say every employee feels that way. But we do employee surveys. And um, eight years ago, I think for everyone who was supporting the agency, there was a detractor, one to one. Or it might have been two detractors to every supporter. Mm. Today, it's 15 supporters for every detractor. So it's changed by a factor of about 30. And I think, you know, on a client side and on any company that you're in, leadership matters and culture matters. And I think never have we seen that more important than through COVID. If you're encouraging people to double down creativity and, and, and ideas and also encouraging people to try new things and, and learn by doing, um, I guess there's also got to be a way to sort of assess the, the, the quality of, of what, what comes out, even if maybe it's not, um, not you know, 100% home run kind of thing on, on the commercial side. So what's the approach? The most famous quote is, I know 50% of my advertising works. I just don't know which 50%. And as right. Hegarty points out, it's actually been one of the big misdirects in our industry. And I think you need to think that the way we think about it, and we have to be careful about it, is where what they're saying with data today is, if I have a, a buggy whip, right? I can identify with data the five, the 10 million people that have horses that need a buggy whip because they have a carriage and I can market directly to them. <laughs> What's not discussed is the cost of buying that data, the cost of, of communicating with them is high. And you also need to know that the other two buggy whip companies can do the same thing. So if you're doing is trying to get them at the right moment, at the right time, and your three competitors are doing it, and it comes down to price, and you're all putting on the buggy whip, you've lost your brand. You're basically commoditizing yourself. Now, I'm giving you the, wor the worst case example, because when the data is done right, it can be incredibly powerful. But what you also need is, you know, and there's all sorts of studies on this too, to grow your business. It's not about going after just the heavy users. When you, when you do broadcast, when you cast your net wide, there are people that will influence the people buying the buggy whips who are never going to buy a buggy whip, who are never in your front line of sight. There are people who may be wanting a buggy whip for things that have nothing to do with a horse and cart. <laughs> you know, there are, there are ways, there are people that may not be buying a buggy whip today who you didn't think about who may need it for something. So, you know, having a broad and the cost of going wide. People always talk about being high, but it's not necessarily as high. So again, I think how you think about it, you need to think about when people are in a category, have people raised their hand? If people haven't even raised their hand of interest in the category, you should be doing big, broad reach to bring people in. Once someone's raised their hand and said, hey, I'm interested in buying a car or I'm interested in driving, there you start mixing the data and, and the broadcast. And I think uh, again, and that's why it comes back to what it used to be called um, activate, you know, we used to talk about brand and activation. And I think the worlds have really come together. And so the way we try and think about measuring it is looking at through data, you can look at when you're targeting people, what is the ROI? And there are media companies that do that. And we look at that. But we also look at brand metrics. We also, like the old fashioned days, we still look at brand metrics. How do people feel about the brand and how is that impacting the short, medium and long-term sales? And, you know, marketing is, 
one of the big sorry one of the big things Andrew if you're for your team if you're watching this is something like 95% of clients think they have a differentiated product about 5 or 10% of people think clients have a differentiated product and the other key stat is we all think we make rational decisions we don't we make deeply emotional decisions and rational decisions think about the cake in the fridge when you go at 3 in the morning and you know you shouldn't be eating the cake but you're hung over or you're hungry and you're like i can't wait till my oatmeal in the morning and the cake disappears that's that's an irrational decision um so so i think i think that's hugely important actually to think about not just to think about everything in measurement now i'm being deliberately provocative away from measurement because everyone's walked away from what i'm talking about or a lot of people mm-hmm. it's a mix so we look at data we look at sales and we look at brand metrics yeah and i think it's that that combination and what about the um the 456 scale so this is a tool that we found has been getting an awful lot of traction with our clients and and um another thing that happened in our industry for those of you who worked in marketing and advertising you'll know is a few years ago unfortunately agencies started creating two departments one that looked after the day-to-day client business and one that tried to win creative awards because that's where you get the recognition and the fame and we worked really hard my partner Susan Cradle one of the top creatives in the world she's extraordinary famous for inventing the M&M's characters a few years ago in a previous life uh as they live today um and we wanted to get away from that we wanted to start thinking about how can you think about any piece of communication whether it's a tv ad a banner ad frankly we've now started using it in in everything we do behaviors meetings everything but it's really mostly about the product uh together with nigel jones our chief strategy officer we came up with a scale and again this is the simple version there's obviously all sorts of and we can send you the text underneath and the thinking of what each one means but you can pretty much put anything you want Uh, work on this scale and the way to think about it is it's not just a one to the next you can do we think brands in general and businesses want their brands to be doing four five and six work so any good work is a four a five or a six any bad work is a one two or a three and it's deliberately an even number because if it was for instance seven everyone would always give the work a four because you don't have to pick does it fall in the good bucket or does it fall in the bad bucket and so one is damaging and i'll talk about that in a second because you'll be like you know you'll be watching saying well why would who would do damaging work two is invisible and that's really work where clients and agencies persuade themselves that the work is really great because it's got the product offer in the right way and but frankly with all the messages we see today it's just vanilla and and, and invisible noticed is interesting because that's where i would say the majority of advertising today is you know if you're a a big multinational with you know a few 100 million dollar marketing spend you can actually grow your business to a 3% with noticed work um you know you just use the power of the media buy and the power of fairly good work to be noticed and so a lot of work sits in 3 and we find a, a lot of time clients will leave a chemistry meeting with us and go oh my god i've just realized i spent hundreds of millions of dollars we did this with a beer company the other day hundreds of dollars on 3 work i need 4 and 5 work So where you then tip over is provocative work you know provocative work not in a negative sense but provocative as in hmm makes you think about either yourself or the product or the category or society 
in a way which perhaps is slightly different from what your expectations are. Creates behavior is interesting because it's about really, you know, it's really the fundamentals of, of driving sales. If you're creating a behavior or a habit, um, it's really a, a powerful, powerful place to be. And then six is what we call never finished ideas. And those are really the big platform ideas that can run for years and years. So, you know, we have a few of those, but the obvious one, Susan developed, talking about the M&Ms is the one that people can gravitate to. But, you know, what you really want for your brand and business is go, what is an idea that we think can run and run and run and run and run? And then fill it with fours and fives. So you go, you know, you know what the idea is that's never finished. And then you're constantly trying to create behavior and provoke people into in a positive way. Um, never finished, by the way, is, is the tagline of our agency. It's, it's this sort of personal belief that however successful you are, however much you learn, you know, you're constantly moving on to the next thing and learning and progressing. Too often clients and agencies, and our, we sometimes fall foul of it, try and do provocative work that, for work that ends up being one work, damaging. Um, because we haven't really thought about the impact. So I've actually used that a lot in, in business and in leadership. Well, you know, I, I, I'm a little over-caffeinated this morning and it was my first call of the day. But, um, you know, sometimes when we're passionate about something, we're trying to do the right thing. We like to be provocative, but actually we haven't thought through the impact. And so what your intent is can be different from the impact of the person hearing it. So you think you're doing for work, but it's actually one work. Obviously the most famous one you can think of is the Kendall Jenner Pepsi work, which I'm sure you've talked about or someone will in class, but you know, they thought, oh, we'll put Pepsi Jenner in a riot and we'll have lots of people of color come and they'll all high five and drink Pepsi. And the clients who did that and the agency who did that thought they were doing brilliant, provocative for work. And it was one work because it had, they hadn't really landed the impact on others. So uh, if there's one thing you take out of this, this, the seminar, I hope, is, is this is a tool for life if you ever work in communications. For every, any penny you spend in anything, whether it's an, an Instagram social campaign, whether it's a big broadcast campaign, mm -hmm. this is a really helpful FCB scale we have to put it against. So since, since you mentioned DE&I, Martina has asked a, a question uh, related to uh, stereotypes in advertising and... and um, We've had uh, the head of the Unstereoty Unstereotype Alliance at the UN uh, speak to us a couple of weeks ago. And so, you know, how, how is being part of, you know, that type of, you know, organization, which IPG signed up to or, or other sorts of, I guess, industry bodies that are seeking to get stereotypes out of ads, increase the diversity and so on. How's that actually changed the nature of the, the way the agency works? It's a great question. I think... I think what, cha what has changed the nature of the way our agency works is changing the makeup of the management team and the leadership. And it's taken us seven years and we're still not, I haven't got it right, but we made progress. So uh, when there was a George Floyd moment this year, which I think led to a lot of introspection about, about racism in the world. We had global calls. We didn't just do it in the United States. You know, we have a huge agency in South Africa and it, actually some of the feedback we got on what, what change needs to happen, I can talk about more if people want to, but our moment was not that. Our moment was actually, that was a moment, 
was back in St. Louis when they had the riots several years ago. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a letter, which I thought I should do. This goes back to a four versus a one. As a leader, I wrote this really strong letter to the press about this is outrageous and, and how can this be happening? And, and Cindy Augustine, my global head of HR, is a black American woman. She read it and she said, Carter, you can't, you can't publish this. And I said, why? Am I going to upset the far right? She said, no, you're going to upset the black community. And I said, why am I going to upset the black community? I'm standing up for the black community. And she goes, because I'm reading this as a black woman. And I'm thinking, how did you not know? How did you not know? Like, you didn't know this was going on? And I think once you see something, you can't unsee it. And that's something we, we or once you hear something, you can't unhear it. And that's something we really take seriously in the company. And... And so it, it really had an impact. And so then I got in the room, we called in some of our senior leadership and we happened to have two black American women, one a Caucasian woman who was married to a black man, one white woman who grew up in the South and me. And we sat in a room and we talked about racism and equality as a leadership team. Now go back and think about if I had all white men on my global executive team, I would have got in a room and they would have high-fived me and said, go, Carl, so this is a great note. And you need to have diversity in the boardroom. You need to have diversity everywhere in order to be able to understand who you're marketing to, but also to have real impact in the world. Diversity drives better creative ideas. It drives better business. And it drives much better self-awareness if you, if you listen. So, sorry, you've got me going on that. And then the final thing I think I should show as a tool, do you want me to show that the, um, the damaging words DE&I we built off yeah. the of scale? Yeah. So, so then what we did is we have this amazing lady who's, who's Susan Cradle, and we have another amazing lady called Vida Harris. And so we worked together on taking that difference between the four and the one, and we now actually go, and it's a consultancy now, we actually take to clients, and we, we take throughout our organization about how to think about the work, the product that we as marketers and advertisers put out in the world. And how do we make sure that we're not doing images that perpetuate, you know, overgeneralized beliefs about specific people? It's amazing how often you need to remind people about appropriation, colorism, um, being socially tone deaf, you know, what we do matters. Marketing matters. The product you put in the world matters. And I think thinking about it as a craft is incredibly helpful. And if it's a craft, there, there are nuances and there are also impacts of what you do. And so we work very hard on trying to make sure that we think about it. So th these are things that we have all our teams go through. And like I said, we have clients who aren't even our advertising clients who have asked us to come in and share this with them. Um, and I think it's really, really important that we do this. No, thanks for sharing that. Um, maybe switching gears a bit now, I wanna come back to some of the questions actually that, that uh, have been asked. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I think we were talking about tech and so someone's asked about basically protecting and advocating for creativity um, within the agency when the wider industry does seem to pressure on tech and data and, you know, and I guess clients could come in the door saying, you know, why aren't we, you know, being data driven or whatever else. So, so how do you, 
how do you how do you make sure that you win that argument against the clients? And is it is it with the work? And you show them, okay, look at this great. Oh, you work. just answered it for me. Yeah, it's the work. Well, I mean, <laughs> the thing is, just to be clear too, um, we have a company called FCB Six. We have data people within our company that sit next to our planners. We actually our most famous work is data led creative work. And maybe it's because we're good in that space that I kind of lean into the creative side. So I, I, I want to be clear too. I love data. I love technology. My first job was more data-led uh, mm. CRM, actually. If you apply yourselves to the fundamentals of marketing and you add how you fuel it with technology and data and how you can reinvent it, I mean, high-value audiences and one-to-one -one at scale is for sure uh, having a massive impact on how we can generate short-term sales for clients. One-to-one -one at scale allows you to get your product at the right time in the right place where someone's ready to trigger a sale in a very, very, very powerful way. Well, of course, you're going to drive your sales, yeah. but you also need to drive emotional relevance. You need to drive emotional resonance. Mm -hmm. um, we've done some work. I don't know how many of you, well, you're based in the UK. I don't know if you've seen the Listerine donkey that we've just come up with. It's on air. We have, you know, a Scotsman you know, there's, it's for mouthwash and you're in a bathroom and a donkey shows up talking about oral care with a Scottish accent, right? I think, you know, that can also be you, that idea when you start activating at the right place at the right time, that donkey can now start giving you all the product messages you need, but in, but in an engaging way. So you know, I think it's really important to get the, so the work is the most important way to do it. And so let me share a bit more work to mm -hmm. kind, of, kind of show that point. I think back to Africa to me, with this one, the Data Grand Prix, is, is really powerful, Andrew, because actually when we talk about uh, building algorithms to drive better work, to target people in the right way, to bring a positive message into the world, you know, this company that does travel for, for black people in America is a big company to Africa. We managed to address racism and hate. We managed to use data to target people and to, to frankly remove the hate, turn it into something positive, and then change the content to market to people in the right way. So ultimately, for me, if you're watching this and people start waxing lyrical, ask for examples, because that's the most important thing is the proof is in the pudding. Yeah. And we do it really quite well, I think. So let's show back to Africa. In the 400 years since enslaved Africans were first brought to America, we've been told to go back. Quote, they should get back on a ship and go back to Africa. That we don't belong. Why don't you go back to Africa where you belong? Go back to Africa! Told by elected officials. Go back to Africa! Told more than once every three minutes online. But what if we could tell a different story about what it means to go back to Africa? This is Go Back to Africa, a pan-African tourism campaign for black and abroad that hijacks real hate as it happens in real time on Twitter, erases the racist context, and displaces it with the positive vision of Africa through hyper-targeted ads for each of Africa's 54 countries. But we had another problem. For black people to want to go to Africa, we need to be able to see ourselves there. And most of the people who appear in mainstream travel imagery are white. 
So we developed an algorithm that pulls hundreds of thousands of travel images from Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, uses Google Vision AI to find the ones likely to contain black travelers, analyzes and tags the content, and pulls them into GoBackToAfrica.com, a first-of-its-kind socially-sourced content platform of aspirational black travel. From Algeria to Zimbabwe, this platform also becomes the foundation for a programmatic influencer marketing campaign. So if one of our millennial targets likes cuisine, adventure, and wildlife, they get a custom ad designed to help them see themselves there. can't just erase 400 years of hate, but we can take back what it means to go back to Africa. It's great work that combines data and tech actually at every step along the way, but it's highly, highly, highly creative and clearly very effective. So I think it, 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 it makes your point perfectly. You know, what's the skill set to be successful in advertising and how's that evolved, uh, you know, since, since the time when you started out through to today and, and, you know, I suspect you could, you know, someone might say, well, you need to be very, you know, data fluent or, or whatever, or you need to be extremely creative. Actually, what this campaign shows is, is teams, at least, maybe not individuals, but teams have to pull all of that together. Yeah, I think that's so well said, Andrew. You know, I often say it's not the name on the door, it's the people you hire and the team that you build. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, a key goes back to what I said before, one or two clients who protect the idea, who know what they want, not a team of 20 um, and then on, on the, I think it's a good question because I do think the role of a planner has drastically evolved uh, and the strategist. And I think that even the creatives, how you think. But the other thing is the next generation coming through and coming through the ad schools and coming through from life also have different skills and what they're capable of doing and understanding of technology. Then, so you mix the different generations and the different skill sets. And it's about getting that right mix of individuals that know what they're doing. I mean, the other thing that, that I think is important is traditionally you had a media strategist, you had an advertising strategist, then you had maybe an activation strategist. And I think those are all fusing into one and the pressure becomes greater. I think it's the questions that, that people have been asking on, how do you get that skill set right? I think the most important thing is actually to feel that you've got three or four of the best people in the room in their different crafts but then respect each other and have fun together. I mean, it's not banking or law, which are amazing businesses, probably more lucrative. It's advertising, it's creativity. And I think it's about teamwork and culture. It's not talked about. It's hugely important to understand the flavor of a product and a brand and the people you're marketing to and to create something magical. Fantastic. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for, for just the great insights and, and sharing so much with, with all of us today. Uh, it's greatly appreciated. Yeah, thank you. Great to see you and really enjoy that. What a good, so I was probably a little over caffeinated to start the day, but thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs>